1: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
0: On this episode, concrete evidence for the existence of a civilization of giants in prehistoric North America.
2: The reliable reports or the reports that we believe are reliable describing the very large remains are for the most part describing people between 7 and 8 feet tall. However, there are Some reports, which would indicate that a lesser number of these individuals range between eight and nine feet in height.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Bright Biz. If you own a business or you've dreamed of starting one, there's a helpful free guide with 36 business power tools proven to boost sales, increase income, simplify your life, and give you better results with less effort. Best of all, this Business Toolbox is yours absolutely free. And these are useful online tools that make doing almost anything a lot easier. Just visit FreeBusinessToolbox.com and grab your copy. I know there are a lot of websites out there that offer you a special deal on something, but then they stick you into some ridiculous recurring program. This isn't like that. There's no hidden thing to try. BrightBiz is giving away this guide free of charge as a means of putting their best foot forward. But all good things must come to an end, so don't wait. Grab your free guide today. Visit freebusinesstoolbox.com. Freebusinesstoolbox.com.
1: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads, exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett.
0: Welcome to episode 50. This is also the start of Orthodox Holy Week, so, wishing all my Orthodox Christian friends, family, listeners, a blessed. Resurrection, Kali Anastasi. You know, as a Bible-believing Christian, I believe that at one time, giants walked the earth. There were entire villages and towns of giants in Canaan. And of course, in Judah, David slayed the giant Goliath. And the idea of giants in the Bible has been tied to something supernatural, because many Bible scholars believe the giants were the offspring of fallen angels and human women. They were human-angel hybrids known as Nephilim. But there is considerable credible evidence that there were populations of giants in North America that probably had nothing to do with fallen angels. My guest is an investigative historian, avocational archaeologist, public speaker, who studies ancient history philosophy, comparative mythology, and religion, and he's here to discuss archaeological reports and historical chronicles of a distant subpopulation of large, powerfully built individuals of extraordinary height who inhabited ancient North America for thousands of years. These North American giants were referred to as the tall ones by the indigenous people and were between seven and eight feet tall with some possibly even taller. In the 1880s, the Smithsonian investigated Adena burial mounds in West Virginia, and skeletons of great length were found. In 1897, a discovery of skeletons in mounds in Ohio yielded another giant. Yet, these accounts have been deliberately suppressed probably due to notions of eugenics that were popular in anthropology in the early 20th century. Many of the ancient lineages were wiped out with the arrival of European explorers centuries earlier. But surprisingly, the tall ones still have living descendants. Jason Gerald is an investigative historian, avocational archaeologist, public speaker. He's a frequent guest on numerous radio shows and podcasts focused on ancient history, cultural studies, and politics. He also has appeared on the Ancient Aliens television series. He is the co-author of Ages of Giants, a cultural history of the tall ones in prehistoric America. Jason Gerald, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you?
2: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: How did you begin your quest uh, with this fascinating field, Giants? Why Giants?
2: Well, the North American giants, which is what they're called in the popular culture today, um, the the North American giants really represent one of the few very interesting mysteries from the ancient world that have actually been uh, professionally documented. Um, They can be proven to have a basis in reality, unlike a lot of other other things, where we're sort of grasping at straws. And I learned this uh, long ago through some articles that were published by my friend and colleague Ross Hamilton in the 1990s. A lot of people may not realize that Ross was a part of the first project that that really had as a, its objective to get to the reality behind this mystery. Um, several other people were originally involved in that project, including the great Native American scholar Vine Deloria Jr. and a lady named Patricia Mason. And long ago, what we learned from their work was not only were their records from the Smithsonian and modern archaeologists all the way up through the 20th century of the discovery of of this unique type of person. But we also learned a specific culture in the ancient Ohio Valley that these people were associated with. And and that's very important because when we know a specific culture... um, then we have an idea of how old they are, we can learn more about how they lived, and uh, basically what they were like, and a lot of their ritual practices. And so this was a subject that really stayed in my mind for many years, and then around a decade ago, my wife Sarah and I moved to West Virginia, and we found that we were living on the site where the Smithsonian had excavated an ancient mound in 1883, which really brought back my interest in the, the tall ones, as we like to call them. And so, from there on, we decided to launch a really in-depth investigation and um, to see what archaeology could actually teach us about these people as opposed to just engaging in speculation.
0: Well, before we begin our discussion on this pre-Columbian civilization. Uh, Why is this topic almost taboo, so controversial? It almost seems that there is, well, on on the one hand, attempts by people like yourself, you mentioned Ross Hamilton and some of the the others, uh, to, to recreate this this um, historical reality. With the one hand, you have people in academia trying to erase it with the other.
2: Well, this, this question, the answer to this question, we had to devote an entire postscript that's around 30 pages long in our book to answering this question, because it is a very complicated situation. It's certainly more complicated than I ever expected when we started our research. Uh, and and um, there, there is no simple answer. Uh, to begin with, I can start with this, the climate today. Uh, what's happening today is the original research by the people I mentioned before has over the last 20, 20 years or so been sort of co-opted and grafted into some very sensational theories,
0: you're talking about and, the, neph- the Nephilim, no doubt, and biblical yeah. accounts of giants and so forth
2: yes and and also um e t s and and things of that nature atlantis um and and what has happened is the anthropologists today, like the current generation of archaeologists, they were already reluctant. To acknowledge the existence uh, of this type of person in American prehistory, but as this subject became more and more sensationalized, I believe that it has encouraged them more and more to deny uh, to deny the the validity of the tall ones. And I'm not siding with the mainstream anthropologists. I'm just pointing out that this. Uh, the situation has grown to be more and more polarized. And so what we have are two, two camps, two very large camps of people. On one hand, who uh, consider these accounts of the tall ones to be proof positive of all manner of sensational theories. And on the other hand, we have mainstream anthropology, which seems to have a real phobia that's developed of any ancient skeleton from North America that was more than six feet tall, and that sort of contrast and conflict are really exacerbating the situation.
0: So, to now, a certain extent, the this whole field has been has been tainted, if I can use that word, um, mm-hmm. by by those that are approaching this whole arena from a, a biblical ET or fallen angel you know, perspective. So it's just everyone you, you hear the word giants and now everyone just is sort of running in the opposite direction.
2: Yes, that's that's in a nutshell is what I'm what I'm trying to say. Um and of course I'm not discouraging people to engage in biblical archaeology. It it surprises a lot of people to learn that I'm a biblical believer myself, even though I do not believe that the uh, the tall ones were the biblical giants, um, and there are a lot of reasons for that
0: right this is a separate subpopulation uh, that just happened to be very large, very powerful um, individuals. but let me ask you is if part of the reason for the 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 hostility if I can use that word uh, in certain quarters has to do with it's challenging the sort of the evolutionary narrative that is that according to evolution people aren't supposed to start off tall and get shorter it's supposed to work the other way around it's it challenges well, it challenges evolution
2: I believe it does there are people who do not believe that we know that um, there were different types of humans in the deep past going back to the paleolithic period there were some groups of human beings uh, who were exceptionally taller and more powerfully built than others. But it, in my opinion, the entire concept of human evolution really is some, its still a theory. And it is a theory that is being taught as a fact. It has never been proven. Uh, it, it has never been uh, founded on any basis that can be replicated and observed in human nature. So that is a a very real possibility. But in our research, we found that this subject wasn't really taboo until around 1910. In fact, if you were to go through the archives of the Smithsonian Institution itself, all the way up until the early 1900s, the Smithsonian published many reports from all over the country that clearly record the measurement of these skeletons. And uh, it's it's been suggested that, well, the Smithsonian today, one of the things that that they've told people today with regards to these old reports is that their agents didn't know how to properly measure a human skeleton. Well, that seems very strange to us because in our book we clearly record instances when Smithsonian agents measured the large skeletons by measuring the femur bones, which is the most accurate method of determining a measurement um, for a skeleton, but it wasn't until around 1910 when a man named Ailes Hertlichka became the curator of anthropology at the Smithsonian that the National Museum initiated a policy of denial regarding these these remains. So, really, if we're going to understand why the, the subject became taboo, we have to go back to the time period when it became taboo. This is not a recent phenomenon this happened over a hundred years ago and it's our theory that really the motivating factor behind it uh, came from the fact that the national museum and other other scientific institutions like the national association for the advancement of science during that time period they were fully staffed with eugenicists And for people who aren't aware, the American eugenicists were a a group of scientific racialists who were trying to present scientific justification for the uh, policies that certain families were trying to push through in the U.S. government to legally exterminate entire races of people inside the United States at the time.
0: Right, this is where the Nazis got their idea for their racial hygiene laws. They just didn't create them out of thin air. They got them from what was going on in the United States.
2: Sir, you are absolutely correct. In fact, uh, as we chronicle in the book, the the same families, including the Rockefellers, the Harrimans, and the Carnegies especially, who financed the eugenics movement in the United States actually financed groups like the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in Germany at the same time. So all of the scientific racialism that was floating around at the time was being paid for by the same people. And that's why the theories on both sides of the Atlantic, in terms of racialist anthropology, were so identical. It's because they had the same source. And although it may seem really bizarre to us today, it may seem very arcane to us, some might say it it, it sounds maddening. Uh, At the time, the eugenicists believed that a person's genetic quality was largely evident by the stature of their ancestors, which is why the eugenicists, In North America, for example, it pushed for immigration policies which narrowed down the countries that America would receive immigrants from to those which they believed had the most Anglo-Saxon or Nordic descent. So it's very possible, in my opinion, that the eugenicists, which included several heads of the Smithsonian, actually, that the eugenicists in the Smithsonian may have seen fit to sort of erase these discoveries because they clearly show that the Native American people had an anthropologically superior ancestor.
0: Fascinating. Fascinating. Jason Jerrell is with us, uh, who, along with his lovely bride Sarah Farmer, uh, co-authored Ages of the Giants, a cultural history of the tall ones in prehistoric America. So let's get into this uh, uh, Pre-Columbian civilization in North America uh, that uh, that existed in, I guess, is, is it called the Early Woodlands period? So around 1,000 BC to 200 BC, is that correct?
2: Well, the well to begin with, let me just give you a brief chronology here to set set things up. Um, the the tall ones actually appear th- the oldest. Uh, skeleton of, of someone who we believe was, was a, uh, a member of this group that's recorded in our book dates to around 3500 BC and it's found in a, a tomb of the old copper culture in the St. Lawrence Seaway. Now eventually over time Uh, the people who were involved in that old copper culture expanded into the Ohio Valley and eventually developed into what we know as the Adena Mound Builders, as you just mentioned. And the Adena culture dates, according to the conventional dating, it dates to between 1000 B.C. and around 200 or 300 A.D. Uh, The Adena were the first to construct large burial mounds and ritual earthwork enclosures in the Ohio Valley. They were hunter-gatherers. They hunted white-tailed deer. They fished and had some level of horticulture, although nothing comparable to large-scale corn agriculture or anything of that nature. They, um, The Adena fabricated artifacts out of bone, copper, and shell, and they essentially represent the, really the birth or the genesis of earthwork construction, mound building in the Ohio Valley. Now, the Adena, the, the mounds of the Adena in Ohio were rapidly destroyed in the 1800s and early 1900s with urban development and the construction of the canals. And very, very quickly, the people began to realize that that there were very large skeletal remains in many of the mounds of this culture, even though it didn't even have a name yet. And it really became the stuff of legend long before the policy of denial was instituted at the National Museum. What a lot of people may not realize is that occasionally professional archaeologists, including some famous professional archaeologists, still discovered these large skeletons all the way up through the 20th century. I think the most recent example in our book dates to around 1981. So this is one of those prehistoric mysteries from the ancient world that really can be demonstrated to be grounded in fact.
0: The the early reports uh, of uh, these mound excavations, uh, how were they how were they constructed? Were they multi layered? Were they were they uh, built only as tombs, or did they serve another purpose?
2: Well, that's a really good question. Um, the Adena burial mounds, as they're understood today, many of these mounds began. ...as some type of ritual site that was not at first used for burial of the dead. We see beneath the mounds, in many instances, there are traces of timber hinges or, or circles of timber poles. Sometimes the ground layer had been stripped away and a clay surface had been formed, possibly for ritual activities... And it's been suggested by several archaeologists that everything from rites of passage to marriage alliances to trade uh, trade agreements may have actually been held in these ritual areas. And then at some point, the ritual area would be dismantled and a burial mound begun over it. So the construction of the mound is really uh, the beginning of the last phase of site use and Adena oftentimes buried their dead in subsurface pits under the floor of the mound, and then the mound would grow gradually by accretion as more burials were added to the mound. Some of the smaller mounds were probably built up by small communities of 20 to 40 people, but around 200 B.C., the Adena began to construct vast ritual landscapes with as many as 50 mounds. And two examples of that would be the Wolf's Plains in in Ohio and the Charleston Mound Group where I live now. Charleston Mound Group, the Smithsonian, destroyed around 50 burial mounds in this one location between 1883 and 1884. And we have acquired the documentation of the Smithsonian agent that excavated the mounds here. And there were actually a good many skeletons found that were very, very large from the mounds here in Charleston.
0: How many... Do we have a handle on uh, how many, typically, how many individuals would have been buried in one of these mounds?
2: Hmm. They range from just a few. There are instances in the upper Ohio Valley and southwestern Pennsylvania where as few as one or two individuals are buried in the mound. That ranges all the way to some of the mounds in Kentucky where a hundred or more burials are found. In reality, the key word to understanding this culture is really diversity because Although it does represent a specific burial cult, it would seem that each community interpreted that cult in their own way. And that goes for the social structure as well. There is a common myth today, and it's, it's a grave misconception, that the ancient giants represent some ruling class that dominated the peoples of the eastern woodlands while they were here. But that is not the case. In some cases we see that large skeletons between seven and eight feet in length are buried with no artifacts. Sometimes they're even found in group burials. In other instances we see that they're buried with numerous prestigious artifacts which could denote some type of social rank. But there has never been any evidence found to suggest that the Tall Ones enjoyed some type of uh, generational rulership over the rest of the ancient Americans, at least until around 1000 A.D. So, with that in mind, uh, I should point out that Adena societies were in some cases, dramatically different from one another, sociopolitically. In the upper Ohio Valley, it would appear that there were actually generational rulers or people who had learned to control the economy to their benefit, whereas in other places, such as the Hulking Valley in Ohio or Kentucky, it appears that their societies remained largely egalitarian. So they were in constant flux on this scale between heterarchy and hierarchy.
0: You know, if I remember my history, the eastern woodland cultures of prehistoric America kept domesticated dogs. Now, if you have a dog, wouldn't you like to develop your dog's hidden intelligence and eliminate bad behavior and create the obedient, well-behaved pet of your dreams? Well, a woman named Adrienne Ferricelli, a professional certified dog trainer, has helped hundreds of dog owners train their dogs to be well-behaved, obedient, loving pets by bringing out the hidden intelligence inside the dogs. You can quickly eliminate any behavioral problem your dog has, no matter how badly you think it's in Grained, no matter what kind of dog you have, the science behind this is simple. You may have heard of neuroplasticity in the human brain. Our brains are capable of learning new behaviors. Well, your dog's brain has this same plasticity with the right mental stimulation that Adrian teaches. Any dog's brain will become more open and receptive to learning new information. Your dog will listen to you and understand what you want it to do. When this happens, bad behaviors simply fade away as more desirable ones appear in their place. So, if you want to check out this remarkable dog training system, just visit realbusinessbargains.com. That's realbusinessbargains.com. Realbusinessbargains.com.
1: The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again. What that means? Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
0: Jason Jarrell is here talking about the tall ones, a subpopulation of giants that were part of the Eastern Woodlands Aboriginal culture, living in prehistoric North America. Uh, based on the uh, the, the skeletons, uh, I know they've been the Adena have been described as powerfully built and ex- of extraordinary height. But w- drill down a little bit on that for me and explain what they looked like, what they might have looked like, how, how tall uh, they were on average, male, female, etc.
2: Okay, so the average population, it's important to remember that the tall ones, I think our book covers about 4,000 years of history. And during that 4,000 years, the tall ones represent a subpopulation that lived among other people who were of average stature. So the average stature could be somewhere between five and a half to 6 feet in height. However, the reliable reports, or the reports that we believe are reliable, describing the very large remains are for the most part describing people between seven and eight feet tall. However, there are some reports which would indicate that perhaps a lesser number of these individuals range between eight and nine feet in height. So the range that I feel is probably acceptable uh, is probably between seven and nine feet for, for the large skeletons. I find most of the accounts that describe anything larger than that are almost universally either fraudulent or they seem to be misreporting uh, several, several of the skeletons. There's, for example, uh, a report of a very large skeleton that we actually found some anthropological notes including femur measurements and the skeleton was actually only six foot three. So when you see these accounts of skeletons thirteen or twenty feet tall, just know that none of those have ever been verified and in fact in several cases they've even been proven to have been pranks pulled on the press. But with the actual work of archaeologists like William S. Webb, Don Dragoo, Um, and several others, um, including archaeologists from Pennsylvania and the Great Lakes area that we cite in our work, we have a fairly clear picture uh, of what these people were like. Their bones are described in Don Dragoo's Mounds for the Dead as being very large and thick. Uh, They had marked eminences on the bones, which would indicate that these people possessed a very strong and powerful musculature. They were not built like people who had any type of pathological disease. Um, And I should also point out that some of these archaeologists, such as William S. Webb, in the 40s and 50s worked with a physical anthropologist named Charles Snow. To really describe and outline the anthropology of these people, they wrote about their very large and massive, very wide lower jaw bones. Um, they occasionally possessed supernumerary teeth, usually between one and four supernumerary teeth.
0: What does that mean, supernumerary?
2: It means teeth, extra teeth, other than what are normally found in a human jaw.
0: An extra row?
2: Now, there are many old accounts from local histories and various media uh, where it describes double rows of teeth. Now, with regards to the actual anthropology reports that we've consulted that do acknowledge the tall ones, there is no instance of a a full extra row of teeth. There are only mention of some Adena uh, with... Usually between one and four extra extra teeth in the jaw. So I'm of the opinion that the reports of the double rows of teeth are probably exaggerations. Where perhaps a farmer or someone else observed maybe one or two extra teeth in a portion of a jawbone that they recovered.
0: How about uh, another? Sorry, I was going to ask you about extra digits, extra toes, extra mm-hmm. fingers.
2: I've been told that that has been found in the Southwest, in the remains from other cultures. It's nothing that I've ever been able to verify myself because most of my research is confined here to the Northeast, Um, but I can tell you uh, matter-of-factly that there is not a single instance of an Adena skeleton with the extra digits. Uh, The Adena did practice a form of artificial cranial deformation, they strap their infants to a cradle board to flatten the back part of the skull, the occipital region, to increase the height of the skull vault. And so this is one reason why if you look at some of the old accounts, it mentions the very large jaw bones and the very large size of the skulls. Many of the skulls appeared very unusual to people in the 1800s. You know, as they dug up some of these remains,
0: were they a warring civilization? I mean, they're obviously formidable. They would be very intimidating, uh, but were they warring?
2: You know, that is a that has become um, a really, really important topic in our our research because. The Woodland period between the early and middle Woodland period with the Adena and the Hopewell, which was a development of the Adena culture really, the Hopewell culture is more famous uh, in Ohio archaeology, but it had its genesis in the Adena, which was earlier. This period in the archaeological record appears to have been a time period of relative peace. And that's very interesting when we consider that these people were hunter-gatherers. In fact, I think it's very significant that large-scale warfare among ancient Native American societies really doesn't seem to have appeared in any way that is obviously evident in archaeology until the first real civilization, uh, the Mississippian civilization, in around 1000 A.D., and the reason they call it a civilization is the Mississippians had big agra. They, had, uh, they were using corn to buffer against any kind of food shortage, and it's also considered a civilization because it was at that time that generational chiefs first appear. But the interesting contrast is that the early hunter-gatherers seem to have enjoyed more peace than their supposed later civilized descendants.
0: Do we have any reports from uh, European explorers? Uh, Now, you know, people talk about Columbus 1492, and we now know that he certainly wasn't first. He was probably last getting over here. And we have the Vikings, of course, and uh, even the Chinese, perhaps. Uh, on the West Coast, other uh, cultures having uh, come to North America centuries before uh, Columbus. Are there any um, any reports from these explorers about encountering these these giants?
2: Well, the early, the actually the earliest European explorers in the in the modern era. If we're going to look at fourteen hundred and and beyond. Uh, there are numerous accounts of, the, of of the explorers and their parties encountering very large individuals who were probably descended from the more ancient tall ones. Uh, in fact, the the record plainly states if we're to look in even to the 18 and 1900s that many of the Iroquois, the Algonquian and sioux speaking peoples still possessed this anthropology. Uh, the famous painter George Caitlin even pointed out that the Osagi Sioux had many males among them that were still seven feet tall uh, in the 1800s. So, of course, there, there are very many accounts of that, that our forebears encountered descendants of the tall ones. In fact, some of the tall ones persisted well into our time. There's a great example that I like to point out to people. A man named Max Palmer, who was born in the the late 20s, Max Palmer uh, grew up to be 8 feet 2 inches tall, and he was a professional wrestler he had a powerful naturally powerful physique his family had him examined throughout his life to try and detect any type of abnormal pathology which could have resulted in his size he did not have giantism he did not have marfan syndrome but he was part cherokee and max palmer actually appeared in several black and white science fiction films including invaders from Mars. And he eventually converted to Christianity, and he preached until the day he died. And he called himself Goliath for Christ.
0: <laughs> Fascinating. Fascinating. Yes. Isn't that- so what happened to the Adenas? Did they... Did they? Uh, were they killed off? Uh, were they... Did they simply uh, sort of meld with other... Uh, Indian groups and intermarry and so forth? What happened to the Adenas?
2: So around 100 B.C., some of the Adena groups in Ohio formulated what is called the Ohio Hopewell culture. And the Ohio Hopewell culture uh, was a much more extravagant expression of the mound building and earthworks of Adena, And over time, Hopewell expanded all the way to southern Ontario and the Gulf Coast of Florida. It became a massive culture. In fact, it's called the Hopewell Interaction Spear in archaeology. And over time, uh, the Adena basically became Hopewell. And around 450 A.D., for reasons that are still hotly debated, the Hopewell culture mysteriously collapsed. It completely disappeared throughout the entire range of the interaction sphere, and all the people who had been participating in it turned inward and became more and more isolated. And one of the theories that I find the most attractive to explain the collapse of this culture is in the heartland, which was along the Scioto River in Ohio of Hopewell, there's evidence that leadership positions were becoming more and more institutionalized. The office of the shaman, or priest, had been split up, his roles had been split up, and they were sort of doled out to different people in a a, um, sort of a social hierarchy that was developing. And that's very similar really, to what's happening to us today, the roles that people are supposed to fill: the healer, the spiritual leader, um, the leader of the hunt These things have all been subsumed by the state with various industries and bureaucracies. So in a lot of ways, that may this same principle may have triggered uh, the people to walk out of this ancient culture. Now it's important for people to remember that following european colonization it's been estimated by some genetic anthropologists that as many as 60 percent of the ancient lineages of north americans were wiped out by disease slavery and warfare so many of the individuals who possess this anthropology may have seen their uh, family lineages disappear after the the full-blown colonization that came after Columbus. But as I said earlier, uh, the genes that that gave these people these features really did continue, and they continue up to the present day in some Native American populations.
0: Do we know where they came from? Did they cross over on the land bridge?
2: Well, I consider myself a former hyper diffusionist. Um, in the past, I believe that these people must have come from somewhere else uh, other than ancient America because there, there are certain features of their culture which are very similar to other cultures from other parts of the world, including Western Europe. Um, and it is also true that gigantic skeletons have been found in Western Europe and other parts of the world, but the more I've learned over the years in terms of how these people actually lived and and the ritual practices that they actually engage in. It's my opinion that these are 100% the ancestors of the Native Americans that we know today. In fact, in our second book, we're going to publish some fairly conclusive evidence from a new project that we've been working on. That should really close the book on that question once and for all. Uh, but in terms of the land bridge, um, I can't say for certain that the land bridge was the only path into America from the, the Pacific. In fact, it, it seems to me that the more we look at ancient humans, there really isn't a point in ancient times when humans seem to me to be very primitive. We can go back to the Paleolithic period and find people in some of the coldest regions of Europe that were living in houses warming up to sleep naked in who were making toys for their children and coming together to hunt mastodons. So I guess the answer is that anything's possible.
0: There's a a famous speech that uh, Abraham Lincoln delivered in uh, Niagara Falls, New York, he was there campaigning. This was before he was president; still practicing law, he was campaigning for someone else, perhaps a, a senator. And he, he talked about the magnificence of the uh, of Niagara Falls, and he made some comment. He wasn't off. I mean, he wrote this speech. He knew what he was talking about, and he talked about how the, the he referred to the mounds, and. I believe he said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, something about the uh, you know, the inhabitants of those mounds, how once they looked upon these falls as well. He, and mm-hmm. I believe he used the word giants. And he did, some, indeed. Some people think, oh, he was talking about the Mastodons.
2: Right, because the Mastodons would have stood there contemplating Niagara the Falls, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, yes. I know, the, the Mastodons are well known for reflecting on nature.
0: <laughs> yes, and they write um, postcards, and...
2: They did, and they, they left rock art and everything else. <laughs> um, and the, the fact is, uh, New York State, uh, in Chapter 15 of our book, we chronicle the expansion of the Adena culture into New York State. They built hundreds of burial mounds in New York State, and one of the largest skeletons on record that's measured by the femur is recorded from an adena mound in new york state the skeleton would have stood around eight and a half feet in height uh, so i've i've seen that speech before and as famous as these discoveries were at the time that abe gave a speech uh, i find the idea that he was referring to mastodons to be highly questionable to say the least
0: absolutely but the point i guess is that that for a a lawyer visiting niagara falls uh, to make that statement it would indicate to me at least that this was just accepted as 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 truth it's oh, no, common common truth
2: yes sir yes sir there's no question it was accepted as truth as as we were discussing earlier it was not until the institution of the Department of Anthropology's policy of denial in the early 1900s that anyone would have denied these discoveries and even that didn't stop the acknowledgement of the discoveries. Uh, William S. Webb, an archaeologist from the University of Kentucky, found uh, a seven-foot long skeleton in the Dover Mound in Kentucky and put that on record in his report for the Dover Mound. Uh, a Carnegie Museum archaeologist named Don Dragoo excavated a seven-foot-long skeleton from the Crecep Mound in Marshall County, West Virginia, and published that discovery in a book called Mounds for the Dead. Uh, going back further in time, here in Charleston, West Virginia, uh, Colonel Norris, of the smithsonian in 1883 and 1884 discovered multiple skeletons ranging between seven and seven foot six inches in height in the mounds here recorded those in smithsonian reports there there never really was a a point where anyone questioned these discoveries uh, until the the department of anthropology decided to sort of blacklist their own findings
0: You touched on this a little bit earlier, uh, Jason, but uh, given the number of mounds and the number of skeletons that were excavated, one would expect that museums would be stacked to the rafters with with these examples, and yet nary a one. Are they they sitting in a warehouse somewhere? Were they destroyed uh, by order of some of these eugenicists that you mentioned earlier? Where are these skeletons, and why— Why can't we see them, and and perhaps when will we see them?
2: Well, just remember that uh, mainstream academia will always use the burial laws to prevent you from seeing anything when it comes to human remains. But in terms of where the skeletons are, uh, the skeletons, there are still some of these skeletons in existence. They're dispersed into several locations, Personally, I have found at least three locations where I know with some degree of certainty that some of the remains of the tall ones are still preserved intact. Many of the skeletons were destroyed. Uh, We know that the Smithsonian Institution... Uh, When they excavated the mounds in the 1800s, a lot of people think they ferried these large remains to the Smithsonian. Usually they only sent the skull of a burial to the National Museum. And uh, the other bones, we have no idea of the long bones of the skeletons, what happened to them. Uh, I can uh, relate a personal story to you that I think really encapsulates this situation. Yes, please. In 2016, I did a presentation in Ohio on the tall ones, and there were around 100 people there. One of the people there was a retired Ohio archaeologist, and usually I get along very well with archaeologists. We have a lot to talk about. We love ancient history, and so this person approached me after my presentation, and we started talking archaeology. And this was a person who had assisted in their first mound excavation when they were 10 years old. And he related to me a story about how in the 1960s, he assisted um, Raymond S. Bobby, who was a very prominent archaeologist in Ohio at the time, in excavating a burial mound in Ohio. And they found one of the tall ones and measured it in the tomb And uh, the archaeologist I was speaking with confirmed that this was one of the very large skeletons I had just presented on. And I said, well, what happened to the remains? You know, that's the first question that most people ask. And he told me that the famous Ohio archaeologist that he was working with threw the remains in the trash, because that was common practice at the time. the the respect of human remains from ancient sites in America is a relatively new phenomenon, honestly. Uh, In fact, in the National Museum at the Smithsonian, if you were to review many of the collections in the Smithsonian, you'd find that the bones are just jumbled together. We, We can't even tell which... Bone belongs with which skeleton from a site, even when they are preserved. So, these factors and many others have contributed to the loss of a lot of information. Uh, Another factor that probably contributed to the disappearance of these remains in a lot of instances are the clandestine groups from the 1800s and early 1900s that had very unhealthy fixations on these large remains. In our book, we talk about how the Theosophical Society and other groups like the Rosicrucians and the Freemasons in different parts of the country were very interested in the large remains. In some cases, such as Lovelock Cave, Uh, A seven-foot skeleton was stolen to be used in initiation ceremonies at a local lodge. So all these factors together uh, really have contributed to the situation.
0: What needs to change in order for us to be able to one day go to uh, the Royal Ontario Museum here in Toronto or the Smithsonian or the Museum of Natural History in New York and see a skeleton of one of these giants, the tall ones?
2: Well, first of all, uh, there are several of the reports that we cite from mainstream archaeologists in our book do have photos. Uh, there's, no, there's no real need uh, to desecrate any burials of ancient Americans or really to, to try to convince the museums to allow us to see them, because in many instances they were photographed in the original site reports. Uh, however... First of all, the burial laws will probably forever prevent us from, as a public, from being able to view any ancient remains from North America. That being said, for the tall ones to be acknowledged, just in a general academic sense, I believe that day will come. It it will probably happen very quietly as a new generation of anthropologists replaces the current guard and begins to actually record the same measurements that we do in our research in their own works uh, but it's not going to be something that happens with any type of attention associated with it it'll simply start slow and it'll probably it'll eventually reach the point where the the vociferous denial of these types of remains that we see from some quarters uh, simply stops as the old guard retires and new academics take their place.
0: The third stage of truth, it is accepted as self-evident. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for this.
2: No problem. I really enjoy it. This is, uh, it's, to me, it's a fascinating subject, and these are all great questions. And uh, it's, it's my job to inform people on this.
0: Well, you do a terrific job at it. Ages of the Giants, a cultural history of the f- tall ones in prehistoric America. Jason Gerald, along with uh, Sarah Farmer. Thank you again, Jason. Thank you. Well, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'm going to tell you what's coming up on episode 51. First, I want to tell you about Life Extension's Mega Green Tea Extract, which provides powerful antioxidant effects throughout the body. Green tea contains health-promoting polyphenols, including a powerful antioxidant, which has been the subject of extensive scientific research. Pour on these multiple health benefits. Green tea is a powerful antioxidant. It supports cell membrane integrity, boosts liver detoxification, enhances immune function, and helps maintain healthy blood cholesterol, LDL and triglyceride levels, and much more. Life Extension's Mega Green Tea Extract is decaffeinated, yet... It contains more polyphenols in one capsule than seven cups of green tea. The Chinese have used green tea for therapeutic purposes since 2000 B.C., More recently, volumes of published scientific findings attest to its multiple health benefits. One capsule a day of Mega Green Tea Extract is all you need. Give your body what it needs. Order right now from Life Extension and save 25%. Just go to SmartClickIdea.com. That's SmartClickIdea.com. If you want to get in on the weekly draw, it's simple. Rate and review this podcast. Grab a screenshot of that. Email it to me at richardserat1 at gmail.com. richardserat1 at gmail.com. And don't forget to include your full name and mailing address. Then be listening every Friday for the draw. Coming up on episode 51 of Conspiracy Unlimited, Dr. Michael Sala discusses the hidden secrets of the Antarctic. Until next time, I'm Richard Serat. So long for now.